0: You know, the other day, somebody asked me if I could play Wonderwall for him. I said maybe. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and induced nuclear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Ah, It's been a week. It was uh, good and it was bad. You know, the bad part being the Kraken getting knocked out for the Stanley Cup. But it's okay. I'm not upset. I'm not thinking about it. It's fine. Uh, Last episode, I had to pre-record it, because Haley and I took a little mini-vacation last week, and it was awesome. We visited the largest guitar shop in South Korea while we were gone, in the capital city of Seoul, and it was amazing. It's called the Nakwon Musical Instrument Arcade. It's right in downtown, and it sort of feels like a flea market, but without the negative connotation that comes with that phrase. It's not dirty or like a bunch of poor quality stuff or anything, but it's a large convention center that's got two stories worth of little indoor storefronts and a bunch of booths inside the aisles. We probably spent the better part of like five hours there to go around and see everything, and it was pretty interesting to see how another country comes by their gear. There wasn't really much in the way of newish products there, a lot of it was about a year or two old at least, but the amount of vintage gear and just downright weird stuff they have there is crazy. I saw some of the effects units for a Korg PME 40X, basically this old multi-effects unit from the 80s that had these little slottable cartridges, similar to the size of like a tic-tac box, so you could swap them in and out and create a small pedal board, basically. So that was pretty cool to actually see in person. One of the shops there had this uh, guitar hanging on a wall. I I posted it to the Instagram. It's literally a strap body, but with the neck on the wrong way, like coming out of the bottom of the guitar and the side of it was glued to an acoustic guitar facing the opposite direction. It's pretty wild. Of course, the majority of what you're going to find there is going to be Korean made brands like Cord string, and this interesting brand that I saw a lot called hex guitars. Uh, what I found pretty interesting was the fact that all of the Amazon brands of effects like jo Amun, Kaylee, Mosky, and the like, were all stocked on the shelves here at these stores. You know, just like you'd see MXR or Boss at a guitar center. It really threw me off. Now, the real treasure that made me excited for Naquan was just the fact that the used gear market here is so different. The guitar isn't as big of a hobby, but they have loads of guitar pedals all the way from some newer stuff, like the Warm Audio Centavo, to some older stuff, like original Made in Japan Boss pedals, like the Spectrum from their original lineup in the 70s. I don't know if it's just the fact that these salespeople, they don't know what they have or what, but you can get some crazy deals on pedals that are either very valuable or just plain hard to find. Of course, uh, I picked up the Centavo, and you'll hear it later in the episode, but I also found, get this, an original Proco Brat, brand new in the box, plastic wrap and all, and these haven't been produced since like 2001, it was only 60,000 won too, like the equivalent of 45 bucks US. It's pretty cool, and given the RAT has to be like one of, if not my favorite pedal of all time, it's cool having a little piece of the history. And of course, I gotta share it with y'all. It's a little different than your average RAT2 or whiteface RAT. It doesn't have an LED, so you have to tell if it's on or not just by listening to it. It's battery only, so no 9-volt power adapter. It's got an entirely different circuit with an extra set of clipping diodes in the feedback loop and the Tone Control actually operates like a standard Tone Control instead of the Reverse Filter Control on regular RATs. Overall though, it sounds different from your standard RAT, and I really like it. These were meant to be budget pedals, so they've got a plastic enclosure and switch that make them a little more fragile than normal, but it still sounds amazing. The other thing that I picked up there was something that I'd been on the hunt for for a while, an Ibanez TS7. These came out in 1999 as part of Ibanez's Tone Lock series, it was pretty unique because they had the ability to push the knobs in so they became flush with the casing, preventing you from messing up your settings with your foot. Once again, surprisingly this thing was also brand new in the box, and it was only about 70,000 won, or 52 bucks, US. It was a great find that I'm super excited about, even though it's not that different from a TS9, the only real change being an added hot switch that gets you a little more of a volume boost and some more gain going. (laughs) I'm kicking myself for not picking one up but we also saw at least 10 Maxon Fireblade distortions there. Why is that important? Well I remember Josh Scott of JHS making a video about that series of Maxon pedals and saying that the Fireblade was super hard for him to find even with scouring the internet and I just found it funny that they were more common there than like a DS-1. Other than that, it was pretty run in the mill We saw a lot of old PA and drum equipment, and even one shop that just sold salvaged, disconnected speakers. We got some street food outside in Nagwon, which, if y'all ever go to Korea, you have to try. You can get a bunch of nonsense that usually costs less than, like, two bucks or so for the largest corn dog that you've ever seen, or this delicious pastry thing called, uh, geronbab. It's like a type of bread with a boiled egg and cheese cooked over top of it. Either way, enough about my week. I've gone on long enough. Let's get into the news for this week. Benson, famous for their Benson Preamp pedal, has just released a new pedal featuring their unique thermal biasing technology called the Stonk Box. It's a four-knob fuzz pedal based on a combination of the Maestro FC1 and the Solo sound Tone Bender. Wait, what? Why thermal biasing? Is the question you may be asking yourself right now. Well, as classic fuzz pedals use germanium transistors to accomplish their sound, there was one big shortfall to the technology. Germanium transistors sound different at different temperatures. Now this isn't just as simple as playing the pedal inside the air conditioning instead of outside in the heat. As an electronic circuit operates, the resistance of the circuit causes some of the energy to be released as heat, meaning the fuzz tone that you start your set with may not be the fuzz tone that you end it with should your precious germanium fuzz be running for an hour or two straight. As soon as you turn the stonk box on, the LED starts up red, and after giving the pedal a few minutes to warm up, the LED will turn green, letting you know the germanium transistors have been brought up to their ideal operating temperature, keeping them at a consistent temperature for your set. As for the rest of the pedal, it includes controls for tone, volume, filter, and trim, Tone and volume do just about what you'd expect, adjust the high end and the output of the pedal respectively, but the filter and the trim controls are where things really start to get interesting. The filter control modifies the bass frequency response by increasing or decreasing the first gain stage's signal, and then controlling the bias of said stage, creating a very tame, restricted distortion at the lower settings, all the way up to gnarly vintage fuzz at higher settings. The trim control is a second gain control that controls the signal heading into the germanium transistors. Where the stock setting is all the way up, dialing it back will get you a less powerful, much more uniquely characterized fuzz. All in all, the demos sound awesome, not to mention the technology alone is something that I'd be super interested in trying out. It's pretty steep price-wise, sitting at uh, 279 bucks, but considering the amount of work and esoteric circuitry put into this thing... I'd say it's pretty well-deserved. The ever-famous Diamond Pedals is back from the dead. That's right, the Canadian effects manufacturer has been revived by its new parent company, Solid Gold Effects, and they've come back in a big way, with five new pedals to mark their return. If you weren't aware, Diamond Effects went out of business back in late 2021 and were just acquired by Solid Gold Effects last year, with no announcements of any revival of the brand prior to this. In this new lineup, we see an overdrive, a memory lane delay, a compressor slash EQ, a tremolo, and a bass compressor slash EQ. Each pedal has the same control format with four knobs and a toggle switch. The diamond drive includes controls for level, drive, a two-band EQ, and a warmth switch. The memory lane gives us controls for mix, feedback, modulation, delay, and a three-position mode switch along with onboard tap tempo. The compressor and EQ includes controls for level, compression, mids, a tilt control, and an attack switch where the bass compressor simply replaces the switch with a tilt EQ frequency selector. And The Tremolo's offering has controls for volume, speed, rhythm, depth, a mode switch, and onboard tap tempo. Each one of the new Diamond line are all in a standard size enclosure compared to the enormous chunks of pedalboard real estate taken up by something like the original memory lane. While the pedals now have a different appearance and a few added controls, the new Diamond lineup is said to have the same core circuitry and tone that everybody raved about, with the addition of a few features such as a doubled maximum delay time on the memory lane accomplished via digital bucket brigade technology, which honestly sounds like somewhat of an oxymoron now that I say that out loud. (laughs) Either way, I'm excited to see it. I've never owned a diamond pedal before this, but with this new lineup, a lot of these are looking pretty enticing, especially the memory lane. I might just have to try one out. Each pedal in the lineup is between 210 and 250 bucks, and all are able to be picked up today. Okay, so this last piece of news, I've got pretty mixed feelings about, but I figured I'd share it anyway, just so all of you can either scoff and laugh or get excited over it to your heart's content. This year's Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, which is being held in New York City from July 13th to July 16th, is including appearances from various different rock and roll artists, such as Pete Best of the Beatles, Daryl Jones of the Rolling Stones, and Tom Hamilton of Aerosmith. The camp is being held at the Cutting Room, a somewhat historic music venue in the Big Apple that's been around since the late 90s. Now the way that this camp is advertised, you'll basically be assigned to a band, of other attendees based on your skill level with the ability to rehearse together, take classes from a host of famous counselors, as they call them, with Q&A sessions and have two separate live performances at the venue. This isn't the part that I'm iffy about, though, as it sounds like the opportunity of a lifetime at first, until you get down to their pricing packages. The cheapest pricing package starts at a mere $2,500 and only allows you the opportunity to attend the classes get access to a single party on the opening night, and the meal that comes with it. That's it, for 2500 bucks. It doesn't include your hotel room, although they claim that you get a discounted rate, probably whatever the group rate is at that hotel. It doesn't cover your travel, it doesn't get you placed in half the things that they advertised, just an insane amount of money to simply show up and sit in on what's going on. The weirdest thing to me is that they offer something called the roadie package for the same price, where you basically have the same perks of the first package, minus the ability to attend the classes, and every perk listed is literally just set up and teardown, assist with rehearsals, assist with recording studio. Like, ah, yes, let me pay you $2,500 to do what other people get paid to do. Just... what? Now, if you want the standard package that they call the headliner package... This is where you get the actual benefits they talk about. The whole being placed in a band thing and having a concert and everything. But some of the stuff is just kind of seems, I don't know, off to me. One of these bullet points says, uh, your band will have a tour manager, professional tech, and sound person at your beck and call. Just the way that they phrase that sounds weird. You know, unless you're some huge act that really warrants it, Nobody is at anyone's beck and call, whether you're in the band or supporting the band. You're all a team that makes the show come together, and just reading that seems somewhat uncomfortable. But I guess if you want to have Roger the Sound Guy waiting on you for the weekend, it'll only run you six grand. If you want to tack on another $2,500, you get the ability to record a song with your camper band in a local studio with Jack Douglas, who worked with John Lennon and Aerosmith. My worry for people here with this is how much time does that get you to record your song? I know when I worked in a studio, depending on how complex the song or the group was, it changed, of course. But for your typical four-piece band, it'd take at least a couple hours to record a song before any mixing, mastering, or post-production was even started. If a bunch of people buy this package, how are you going to have the time to record? Even if you do get, say, two hours... That's over a grand an hour for studio time at that rate. Even at some of the more ritzy studios I've seen, you're usually only pushing $250 an hour for recording time, so you're paying quite a premium here. They also have a bunch of additions which seem a little strange, like an extra $900 just for lunch to be included each day, coming out to a cool $225 per meal. Along with a package called "Follow Me" photography, where they promise to capture all your moments behind the scenes and on stage for six hundred bucks. Again, what? The most bonker th- bonkers thing to me about this whole thing is that plastered all over the page is this whole five ninety nine reserves your spot no less than twelve times just on the homepage, and of course. You know, that makes sense. Offer some financing for people, because even the cheapest package is pretty steep. But then you read a little closer, and if you don't pay in full, that $599 is a one-time fee to start billing you month by month until the camp starts. If you don't pay in full by the time the camp starts, they also don't offer refunds. I don't know. I know I'm sort of ragging on this. I don't think it's a scam or anything. Like, I fully believe they're going to be doing what they say that they're doing here. But I just don't see this being worth it in my eyes. Maybe I'm wrong. Four days of lessons from somebody, no matter how famous they are, isn't going to get you the same knowledge that you get spending that money on months or even years at the prices they're talking of actual guitar lessons or getting a subscription to a guitar learning program. I just don't see this being worth it, and with all the taglines they're throwing in, it seems like a real cash grab, almost giving me like, Firefest sort of vibes with the way they're not providing meals at the hotel or anything and taking that much money just to show up if you do happen to go though and i'm totally wrong i genuinely would love to hear about it please shoot me an email or a dm if you do go let me know how it is there i'm happy for you if this is your thing Uh, this is something that speaks to you and is worth it to you to go enjoy don't let my opinion make you have a bad time So this week, I wanted to talk about a much maligned feature of many guitars. Many love it, many hate it, many love using it, but hate anything to do with restringing or setting them up. (laughs) Of course, I'm talking about guitar tremolos. Now, as I've said before when we talk about tremolos, tremolo isn't really the correct term here. Tremolo actually describes a variation in a note's volume, where vibrato is a variation in a note's pitch meaning that your Floyd Rose, your Fender-synchronized Strat Tremolo, and all others are really just mechanical vibratos. However, for ease of understanding, we're gonna refer to them as tremolos unless the manufacturer calls them a vibrato. So what are guitar tremolos? Well, they're a mechanical device that typically uses a spring mechanism to counteract the tension of the strings on your guitar. While at rest, the spring mechanism either does nothing or evenly balances your string tension. But when force is applied to the tremolo arm usually a rod sticking out of the guitar's tremolo system the spring is either compressed or stretched out changing the tension of your guitar's strings and therefore their pitch tremolos come in many different forms with some being as simple as a bigsby and some being as complex and intricate as a floyd rose but if you've always wondered about the history of the absolute mad men who wanted to slap springs on a guitar or we're curious about the benefits and drawbacks of each kind of system, that's what we'll be addressing today. <laughs> the history of the tremolo all begins with a man named Clayton Orr Kaufman, better known as Doc Kaufman, who was actually one of the little-known major players in the development era of the solid-body electric guitar during the 1930s through the 1940s. Doc Kaufman designed the very first mechanical tremolo system in the world, the kaufman vibrola the kaufman vibrola's patent application was filed in 1928 and granted in the early 30s it was a surface mount tremolo unit meaning it required no additional routing to the guitar's body as the spring mechanism was mounted to the top of the guitar hidden beneath a large metal plate the operation of the unit was pretty simple it featured a single spring on the right side of the unit connected to one end of a lever that had the tremolo arm on the left side the lever pivoted on a peak moving the tailpiece of the tremolo where the strings were anchored back and forth very slightly. It differs somewhat from modern tremolos, because instead of pressing the tremolo arm down towards the body of the guitar, the player would have to pull the tremolo arm towards themselves, something called side-to-side action. The Kaufman Vibrolo was first offered as a stock feature on Epiphone archtop guitars in 1935, with Rickenbacker then offering the unit standard on their Electro-Spanish models in 1937, a guitar that had way too much chrome. Even for 1930s standards. <laughs> like, seriously, look up a picture. These things had to be blinding if you were playing them outdoors in the sun. I guess nobody can hear your mistakes if they're worried about permanent retina damage. <laughs> the Kaufman Vibrola really only remained relevant during the 1930s, and its popularity began to wane during the 1940s as newer, more stable options began to develop. It's extremely hard to find a Kaufman style tremolo equipped guitar. I don't even have one here to show you, but it's still important to identify where the whole journey started from. In 1951, we see the example of the first tremolo unit still in modern production today. The Bigsby. What? What are you doing? Huh? Yeah, my dog's name is Bigsby. So what? I'm not that creative with names, all right? Just be glad it's not something even more obvious like Fender. (laughs) Alright. Paul Bigsby was another one of the large players in the early development of solid body electric guitars, so much so that he's actually most likely responsible for the development of the current Fender headstock shape. Yeah, look up the Bigsby Merle Travis guitar, manufactured well before the first Fenders, and tell me if that headstock looks familiar. Anyway... This motorcycle-riding ne'er-do-well that would have fit right in with the cast of the musical Grease was asked to fix a Kaufman Vibrola by none other than Western legend Merle Travis himself. Upon breaking down the tremolo, Bigsby saw where its flaws were and decided he could make a more stable, easier-to-manufacture top-mount tremolo, aptly named the Bigsby Vibrato. Bigsby Vibratos usually come in three styles, the B3, B5, or B7, with other models being variations of these, say for the B-16, which is essentially a B-5 but with a mount for a Telecaster bridge pickup. Each one of these tremolo units operates in a similar way. There's a rod-oriented horizontal to the guitar body, with numerous protrusions on it to hook the ball end of your strings onto. This bar is rotated by the in-and-out motion of the tremolo arm, which presses down on a single-coiled spring. Bigsby vibratos were first offered on Paul Bigsby's own guitars before he ceased to produce his own instruments in the 50s, solely producing Bigsby vibratos for aftermarket sales or as a factory stock option on the Fender Broadcaster, Esquire, and Telecaster. The advantage of Bigsby vibratos is that they're very low maintenance, easily installed as an aftermarket option, and contain very few additional parts. Setups with a Bigsby are no different than a standard guitar; there's no balancing of spring tension to worry about and you'd hardly notice a difference between a bigsby equipped guitar and a hardtail guitar if you just remove the tremolo arm. Installation of a Bixby is super simple, especially something like a B5 where it just takes a few screws to mount it onto the body and you're done. I also really don't tend to have any issues with tuning stability when I use a bigsby equipped guitar, at least much less than when I use something like a Floyd Rose. The way that each string is bent on a rod with no balancing act required means that you could also use a Bigsby for a guitar in an alternate tuning without having to worry about strings trying to shift towards a more even tension. The disadvantage of Bigsbys primarily have to do with a range of motion. While they can work in both directions i.e. pushing the arm down to lower the pitch and pulling it up to raise the pitch, they're best used for very slight, slow bends rather than lightning fast bends or dive bombs it's going to be a very tame use of the Tremolo with a Bigsby in most cases. Here to demonstrate the use of a Bigsby. I've got my Gretsch G2655T, which comes stock with a Bigsby B50, the import version of the Bigsby B5. 1954, we see the next major development in the story of guitar tremolos. The Fender Synchronized Tremolo found standard on the ever-popular Fender Stratocaster. Leo Fender's tremolo was actually the source of a bit of drama during the early days of the electric guitar, with Fender previously having a contract where he'd buy Paul Bigsby's tremolo units for his Telecaster models, but after noticing some issues where the Bigsby could get hung up on the guitar's bridge due to the winding of the strings getting caught on the saddles, he thought he could do one better. Fender's synchronized tremolo first appeared in the mid-1950s on the brand spankin' new Fender Stratocaster and has been a standard feature on them ever since. In fact, this is where the misnomer of calling vibrato systems tremolos comes from, as Leo Fender advertised the arm as a tremolo arm in his Stratocaster ads, leading the guitar world as we know it to keep with the misinformation. Maybe we didn't know better. Maybe we're just lazy. Maybe tremolo just has a better ring to it. Who knows? This tremolo appears similar to a standard hardtail bridge on the top of the body, with six individual saddles resting on a metal base plate, anchored to the body via six individual screws in the original configuration, or two pole pieces on the modern configuration. The back of the body is where things get interesting, however. There's a large metal block anchored to the bottom of the base plate that assists with a resonation, which leads to a channel covered by a plastic plate on the back of the body. This cover reveals a cavity that contains a series of springs hooked to the bottom of the sustain block at one end and to a metal claw screwed into the body at the other. The reason for the springs is simple, really. While your strings pull in one direction on the top of the guitar's body, the springs pull in the other on the bottom, creating a sort of balancing act that keeps the tremolo stable in a neutral position when not being used. Whenever you want to change string gauges or use an alternate tuning, it can throw the tremolo off, So you're able to adjust the tension of the springs to match your strings by screwing the claw in and out of the body, lengthening or shortening the distance springs cover with the ability to add more or take them away as needed. The advantage of Fender's synchronized tremolo is the fact that the bridge saddles move as you press down on the tremolo arm, somewhat negating the ability for the strings to get hung up on the bridge's saddles, which could contribute to the guitar not coming back into tune after bends. The Fender synchronized tremolo, while more complex than a Bixby, can be used with zero maintenance required. As the back of the metal base plate rests on the body, you could tighten the springs down to where the tremolo sits on the body, remove the tremolo arm, and never have to worry about the accidental bends if you just prefer a hardtail guitar. It's sort of the best of both worlds. There's two large disadvantages to the Fender design, however. The first is that even though the saddles are synchronized, the nut is not leading to the possibility that guitar strings could still get hung up on the nut and contribute to tuning issues. There's two ways to fix this, however, one of them being really simple, just using some sort of guitar nut lubricant, like (laughs) Big Ben's Nut Sauce, which I promise is a real product, I'm not making that up. (laughs) The other is a part developed by Fender in the late 80s, the LSR Roller Nut. The roller nut requires a bit of routing to the guitar's nut slot, but it's an all-metal nut that houses a pair of ball bearings for each string to rest on, creating a frictionless slot for the string. The other disadvantage to the Fender design was that the tremolo can only really be used in one direction, downwards, or lowering the tension of the strings. Since the back of the bass plate rests on the body and pulling the tremolo arm up would require the bridge to sink into the body to raise the string tension, this just isn't really possible with Fender's design. Here to demonstrate the use of a Fender synchronized tremolo, I've got a Stratocaster that I heavily modded as a teenager for heavy metal. But uh, bear with me. A couple of years ago, I got tired of the strings getting hung up on the nut and installed an LSR nut on this one as well, in addition to all the other nonsense I did. So you hear a pretty smooth tremolo action right here. Gibson has never really been known for its tremolo units, but they do have a few offerings that sprung up during the 50s and into the 60s. While I don't have any here to demonstrate, they're still important to note if you're looking for something unique. The first one to crop up was in the 1950s, and it was a small guitar-shaped metal plate that came with two rods called the Gibson Viber rest. The Viber rest was primarily designed for archtop hollow-body guitars, where the strings had a large, long break angle between the trapeze-style tailpiece and the bridge. Essentially, you would fit these two rods so that one sat over the strings and one sat under the strings. The rods would slide into plates on the larger body area, and you would press down on the headstock of this guitar-shaped plate to slightly bend the strings. While these are easy to install and require no permanent modifications, you really can't use them very heavily, and they won't work on guitars that have a wide string spacing, short distance between the saddles and the tailpiece, or a guitar where the strings terminate at the bridge. The Gibson vibrato first appeared on limited high-end SG models in 1962, and it had a method of operation similar to the Kaufman vibrola. You had a long arm that folded out from the side of a base plate, which the player would manipulate by squeezing it towards them, compressing the two springs that pulled the tailpiece back and forth. It had the same shortcoming as the Kaufman vibrola due to its similar design, where you had a very short and unnatural range of motion. The Gibson vibrola, sometimes called the lyre vibrola because of the musical lyre engraved on some of the plates, appears very similar to the Gibson vibrato with a long tailpiece, but the mechanism is much more simple. The tailpiece is just a spring metal plate, and the tremolo arm is pushed down, compressing the plate and slackening the strings, then released, allowing the plate to return to its usual position and tension. These tremolo units are typically very rare, and Gibson refuses to sell them as a part, so if you're just dying to have one for a vintage-accurate SG build, you'll need to find one on the used market that somebody ripped off of another guitar. The only word of warning here is that due to the way they operated, older units especially will eventually run out of springiness, I guess, in the plate, negating their use. Alright, now that we've gotten Gibson's foray into tremolos out of the way, back to the cool stuff. So going back in time a bit, and back to the Fender side of the house... The wonderful year of 1958 brings us to the advent of the use of the Fender Floating Tremolo, the tremolo unit typically found on Fender's Jaguars and Jazzmasters. The Floating Tremolo is pretty interesting because it was designed and marketed as being the premium version of all the Fender Tremolo systems, but it never really became very popular. The way it works is simple enough. If you look at a standard Jazzmaster or Jaguar, you'll see a large curved plate at the tail end of the guitar, Protruding from this plate is a slotted piece of metal for the ball end of the strings to hook into, as well as a small circular button. Underneath this plate, there's a single spring connected to a piece of metal that holds the strings, as well as the slot for a tremolo arm. When you push down on the tremolo arm, it moves the string plate forward, loosening the string tension. So why was this tremolo considered an advancement for Fender? Two big reasons. The first has to do with that nifty little button. This button sat in a sliding track, and requires a bit of trial and error to use. Essentially, you tune your guitar strings to pitch, and then you try to slide the button towards the strings. It's sort of like a USB cable, in that it never works on the first try, so you either tighten or loosen a little screw, retune, and try to slide the button again. Eventually, you get to the point where the button blocks the plate from any forward or backwards motion, allowing you to block the tremolo from tightening the strings. This feature has two major advantages. One, it allows you to use the tremolo in two modes, either forward only as in the Stratocaster trem, or forward and backward, similar to a Floyd Rose, which we'll talk about in a minute. The second is that if you have the trem in the locked position, it prevents the other strings from going out of tune if you break a string mid-performance, as there's nowhere for the trem plate to go when it's blocked. Pretty advanced. The second feature that makes the floating trem an advancement actually has to do with the bridge, As we talked about before, strings tend to get caught up in the saddles when the tremolo is being used, so the bridge that comes with these floating trims compensates for that. It looks pretty similar to a standard tunematic, but it's hiding a little secret on the underside. The bridge posts actually contain a little allen screw that creates a point at the bottom, which allows the bridge to rock back and forth with the motion of the tremolo, ideally keeping your strings in tune. It doesn't always work, but we'll get to why that is. The advantages of the Fender floating tremolo really have to do with the sliding button to lock the trem and the fact that there's very little maintenance or difference to set up. Due to the way the tremolo sits, it's also very hard to accidentally manipulate it, even for the most aggressive of guitars, as the only exposed pieces that moves when the arm is attached is about 8 inches away from where you'd be strumming at, and it's very thin. The primary disadvantage of the floating tremolo is that the rocking bridge, while a good idea in practice, really doesn't work all that well for most players. There isn't a steep break angle between the bridge and the tailpiece, and Fender Jaguars have an extremely short scale length, resulting in a much lower downward pressure on the bridge. Combine that with a bridge not always being able to return to its stock position, and you've got a host of tuning issues. Not to mention the original floating trims had saddles with threading that looked like screws, So if you had a particularly deep bend on the tremolo unit, your string could jump into another channel, resulting in a higher tension and a tuning change. There are a few ways to fix this, however, which I've done with my Classic Vibe Jaguar here. The first, make it so that the bridge doesn't rock. I know, I know, sacrilege, blocking it from what it's supposed to do, but hear me out. Wrap a bit of electrical tape around the bridge posts so that the bridge fits snugly inside the mounting holes. Then it'll stand straight up and it won't rock, negating its tendency to fail to return to the right position. This still leaves the issues of the strings getting hung up on the saddles, however. So what I did with my Jaguar was I went out and I got some GraphTech Jaguar saddles. These saddles are made with a chemical called polyfluorotetroethylene, or PTFE, which is extremely slippery and helps to prevent the strings from getting caught up. This, combined with having only a single channel, makes a rocking bridge pretty much redundant, The only issue these create is that since the saddles are no longer metal, you'll need to drill out another channel for your bridge grounding wire to go to the tremolo plate now instead of the bridge, or you'll start picking up radio frequencies with your guitar. Don't ask me how I know. Anyway, here's my Squire Classic Vibe Jaguar equipped with Fender's floating tremolo. I've retrofitted mine with a standard Fender model that includes the locking button, so just be aware that most Squire floating trems won't have these buttons stock. For some reason, they didn't include the button. Budget cuts, I guess? The last major update to guitar tremolos comes about in the year 1979, when a full-time jeweler, part-time rock-and-roll guitarist named Floyd Rose invented a system called a locking tremolo that's now come to be known as the Floyd Rose Tremolo. The Floyd Rose Tremolo is a major departure from other tremolo units, really only sharing its DNA slightly with the Fender Synchronized Tremolo or the Stratocaster Trem. It's got the same spring and claw mechanism in the rear of the guitar, as well as a sustain block that sits underneath the base plate, but that's about where the similarities end. To start, the Floyd Rose base plate is a huge hunk of metal, absolutely enormous and it weighs a ton, with a large amount of small parts for individual saddles, fine tuners, and intonation adjustment, a product of Floyd Rose the inventor being a jeweler and having the experience and the ability to work with small parts. The nut on the Floyd Rose is also unique, containing three separate pads with Allen screws that can't clamp down on the strings. So why was the Floyd developed this way? Well, mainly to solve the problems in the popular Strat tremolos at the time. The first and largest change of the Floyd system is the locking nut. On a regular Stratocaster tremolo, one of the sources of tuning instability can be the string winding around the tuning posts actually loosening as the strings slacken. So with the Floyd Rose tremolo, when you lock the nut, this eliminates the possibility of that happening. As long as you have the pads clamped down tight enough, you could literally cut the strings behind the nut, and the string would stay in tune. It's crazy. The second change has to do with the addition of fine tuners behind the saddles. The Floyd Rose has an individual thumb screw for each saddle that sits on top of the bridge. These screws create pressure on the string retention screws, which sit on a spring metal plate that ever so slightly adjusts the tension of the individual saddle. Original Floyd Rose models actually didn't have these fine tuners. They were developed as Floyd's response to the problem he created. When you clamp down on the locking pads on the nut, sometimes it can cause the pressure on the strings to change, ever so slightly throwing your guitar at a tune. With the fine tuners, you have a limited range of adjustment, usually between one or two steps in either direction, to correct the tuning after the nut's been locked. It's pretty ingenious. Floyd Rose Tremolo Systems began as one-off products sold by the man himself to hobbyists and pros alike including the famous players like Eddie Van Halen and Steve Vai. In 1979, Floyd Rose entered an agreement with Kramer Guitars to make Floyd Rose Tremolos a stock option on their guitars, eventually becoming their only vibrato due to demand in less than five years. Floyd Rose then began to license his design to numerous other manufacturers, although some companies, like Kaler, created very similar copies of the design that led to patent infringement cases. For a while, between 1991 and 2005, Fender actually had exclusive distribution rights to the Floyd Rose Tremolo, but when the agreement ended, the distribution of Floyd Roses now once again lies exclusively with the Floyd Rose Company. So what are the advantages and the disadvantages of the Floyd Rose? The advantages of the Floyd Rose lie in its sheer amount of mobility. In its traditional setup, you can easily manipulate the trem arm to loosen or tighten the strings, creating wild amounts of pitch changing, including the ever-popular dive bomb, where you press the trem arm all the way down and slacken the strings to where there's hardly any tension on them at all, which I'll do in the end of the demo. The backwards motion of the tremolo is also extremely wide, wider than any other model we've talked about so far, in fact, creating very large raises in pitch as well. The locking nut is the other large advantage, preventing a loss of tuning stability when doing even the craziest dive bombs. The disadvantages of the Floyd Rose are something that really made me dislike them for a long time, but over the last couple of years, I've learned that most of these disadvantages are really just perceived very incorrectly at that, so I'll start with the one that's problematic regardless of model. Setup work on the Floyd Rose Tremolo is a nightmare. Restringing them requires some type of block, such as a 9-volt battery or a wine cork cut to shape to prevent the tremolo from sinking back into the body when tension is removed. Intonation on Floyd Rose Tremolos is equally problematic, as you need a special tool to keep tension on the saddle, or else it slams forward as soon as you loosen the screw. Lastly, the balancing act between the strings and the springs requires constant, lengthy tuning sessions especially as the floating nature of the trem makes it extremely difficult to use non-standard open tunings or drop tunings. The perceived differences of the Floyd Rose in my experience are actually not from the design of the Floyd Rose itself, but rather from the poor quality components used in the budget-licensed Floyd Rose versions on more wallet-friendly guitars. Floyd Rose tremolos balance on something called a knife edge, a very thin portion of metal on the bridge plate that fits into a rounded slot on the bridge post. This knife edge has to remain extremely thin, and on actual branded Floyd Rose models, or high-quality licensed stand-ins such as the Ibanez Zero, the metal on the bridge plate is hard enough to retain this edge, even after years of use and abuse. On lower-quality models, however, this knife edge tends to get worn down rather quickly, over the course of weeks or months, preventing the bridge from seating exactly in the center of the channel, thus creating a tension change. In addition to this, weak string retention blocks can crack or develop burrs under pressure, and poor locking nuts can develop burrs or impressions where the strings sit, contributing to string breakage or slipping. Every time I get a budget guitar with a licensed Floyd Rose, I typically order a similarly specced Floyd Rose Special to replace it with instead, as the higher quality parts wear much slower and get rid of a majority of the tuning instability and issues people complain about with the units. Here, I've got the Cort X300 Flip, a Korean-made guitar that comes with the Floyd Rose special stock. I've got it tuned to drop G-sharp for some really down-tuned music in the vein of bands like Issues, so I'll do some standard tremolo work and then end it with a dive bomb as promised. (laughs) ¶¶ And that ends our segment on tremolos. I know I've left out a whole lot of models, but a majority of those are either extremely limited use cases specific to a brand or model, or they're derivatives of one of the major types we've talked about already. So if I've left out your favorite type of Trem, I'm sorry, I know, I'm a terrible person, come throw a brick through my window to show your anger, I'll come outside, apologize, we'll shake hands, and you can be on your way. I'm here for you. So for dinner tonight, uh, Haley made some blackened chicken that ended up being really good, but she added way too much cayenne powder, and it was extremely, extremely spicy. Red hot, as some would say. The taste of a red hot chili pepper. Which just so happens to be the band and famous tone we'll be talking about today. The famed guitarist of this California-based rock band, John Frusiani. In Los Angeles, California in 1982, two friends at Fairfax High School, Anthony Kiedis and Michael Balzari, a.k.a. Flea, were tasked with forming a band to play the opening of an EP release party for a friend. The two asked two more friends, Hillel Slovak and Jack Irons, to play guitar and drums respectively, forming the first-ever lineup of the then-unnamed Red Hot Chili Peppers. Their first show was a resounding success, leading to more local gigs and eventually a recording contract with EMI Records. In late 1983, Slovak and Iron's other band, What Is This?, also obtained a record deal, leading to the first lineup change in the band's history very early on, with the duo being replaced by Jack Sherman on guitar and Cliff Martinez on drums. The band's first and self-titled album release, in mid-1984, and it quickly gained traction after being played on local radio stations and eventually MTV, launching them into a particularly demanding tour where they played a show a day for little more than two months, just about. The tension of the tour eventually caused Sherman to leave in the following year, when Slovak rejoined shortly thereafter. Red Hot Chili Peppers released their second album, Freaky Styly, later in 1985, but achieved very little commercial success, probably due to the fact that drug use was a big motivator for the album, a theme that we're going to see reappear in this story quite a bit. This vice-ridden attitude would continue into their next album, when the band was given $5,000 for recording sessions and immediately earmarked nearly half of that budget solely for drugs. This led to Cliff Martinez being fired from the band, where Irons rejoined in mid-1986, Their drug addiction created numerous problems with the recording of their third album, The Uplift Mofo Party Plan, which came out in 1987, and the subsequent tours supporting it. Members would frequently go on benders and ignore the band for days at a time, eventually resulting in Hillel Slovak dying of a heroin overdose in 1988. Jack Irons would then quit Red Hot Chili Peppers due to difficulties dealing with Slovak's death and the band's addictions. In late 1988, the band began to shape up, hiring guitarist Dwayne McKnight and Darren Poligro as a drummer for their tour. McKnight was fired shortly after, as he wasn't a great fit for the band, and Peligro encouraged his friend John Frusiani, a longtime fan, to join the band as a guitarist in late 1988. Two months later in November, Peligro was let go from the band due to developing a substance abuse issue. Ironic. As the band held auditions for a new drummer, ultimately bringing on Chad Smith, creating the current Red Hot Chili Peppers lineup as we know it today. Red Hot Chili Peppers released their fourth album in mid-1989, titled Mother's Milk, which was the first album of theirs to reach gold status in the following year. After the success of Mother's Milk, the band became the new hot topic of the 90s, and was sought by numerous record labels, landing them a contract with Warner Brothers to record Blood Sugar's Sex Magic that spawned timeless hits like Under the Bridge and Give It Away. The album was released in late 1991 and spawned a tour that included numerous large acts like the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. Frusiani, understandably being a teenage musician under a lot of pressure, began to struggle with the life of a touring rock band and developing numerous bad habits, including a drug addiction. He left the band in 1992, with a few stand-ins being had in the following years until Dave Navarro, formerly of Jane's Addiction, was brought on in mid-1993. In 1995, the band had released their sixth album, One Hot Minute, and even though they saw continued commercial success, the band still struggled with their vices, eventually leading them to only playing a mere three shows in 1997 when they had an entire tour scheduled. In 1998, Dave Navarro left the band with John Frusciante kicking his addiction and returning to the band to record their next album, Californication. Californication was a huge landmark for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, being their most successful album ever due in large part to John Frusciani's creative writing. The album's release in 1999 kicked off a lengthy international tour where the band received some negative press coverage after one of their concerts resulted in a riot at Woodstock 99. In 2002, Red Hot Chili Peppers released their eighth album, By the Way, which included the hit song Can't Stop and led to even larger success, including a Greatest Hits album. In 2006, the band released Stadium Arcadium, their longest album and first one to enter the U.S. charts at the top. The album netted them five separate Grammys, two of which were solely for the song Danny California, which is what we'll be using today for our tone. During the tour that supported Stadium Arcadium, John Frusciante's friend Josh Klinghoffer began to play rhythm guitar and keyboards for the band. After the tour, the band took a brief hiatus in 2008, where the band members focused on other aspects of their life, such as fatherhood, college, and solo recording projects. In mid-2009, John Frusciante departed the band yet again, but with no drama, just a desire to focus on his personal projects and having Josh Klinghoffer take over his role, becoming the band's sole guitar player. Red Hot Chili Peppers released their 10th album, I'm With You, in 2011, ending three years of inactivity, and played a small tour the same year. The following year, in 2012, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and after limited releases of singles, had their next big event when they played at the Super Bowl halftime show in 2014. In mid-2016, the band released their 11th album, titled The Getaway, that has a song with my favorite bass track of all time, Dark Necessities. If you haven't heard it, you need to take a listen. If you have a bass, and you haven't played it, what are you doing with your life? It's one of the most fun songs to play slap bass on. Come on. The Getaway's supporting tour began in mid-2016 and lasted for almost a year and a half with over 150 total shows worldwide. In 2019, John Frusiani returned to the band and played their first show with them in early 2020. Then, they subsequently had their tour dates canceled due to COVID-19. During this time, Red Hot Chili Peppers recorded their 12th album, Unlimited Love, and released it on April 1, 2022 was accompanied by a serious XM channel centered around the Red Hot Chili Peppers titled Whole Lotta Red Hot. Their 13th and most recent album, Return of the Dream Canteen, was released in October of last year. So, as I stated earlier, this week the tone we're going to be looking at is from the song Danny California off the album Stadium Arcadium, and is one of their most successful songs of all time. We'll be looking at the gear and tones used by John Frusiani and trying to replicate it as best we can without spending the thousands of dollars that John's vintage gear is worth. John Frusiani's favorite and most used guitar is his 1962 Fender Stratocaster that was actually gifted to him by Anthony Kiedis when he returned to the band for the first time. It's got a 7.25 inch fretboard radius, three stock single coil pickups, a maple neck, rosewood fretboard, alder body, and the standard Fender control scheme. If you bought an original one on the used market, you'd likely be paying upwards of $40,000. And if you want to pick up Fender's custom shop, accurate-to-spec relic of a 60 Strat, you'll be paying just under five grand. For those of you that are still on a budget but looking for your forever Strat, consider the Fender Ventura Modified 60 Strat. It's got an alder body, maple neck, Powell ferro fingerboard, 9.5-inch radius, and standard 25.5-inch scale length. It's got a synthetic bone nut, two-point synchronized tremolo, Fender vintage accurate hardware, and a standard Stratocaster control scheme, all for $12.99. Here I'm going to break the mold a little bit, and I'm going to roll with the Squire Classic Vibe 70s Jaguar for $459. It's got a poplar body, maple neck, Indian laurel fingerboard, 9.5 inch radius, 24 inch scale, and a real bone nut with Fender's floating vibrato. Alnico pickups, and a standard Jaguar control scheme. The reason I'm going with this is more of a personal choice combined with John Frusiani's guitar choices. He was known to play Fender Jaguars pretty regularly, and since we're going to be using the neck pickup exclusively for this tone, we don't need the pickup combinations that a Strat gives us with its 5-way blade switch necessarily. John Frusiani used a 200-watt Marshall Major on the Stadium Arcadium recordings, It's a beast of an amp that's going to set you back a cool uh, $3,800 on the used market. The Major was actually an extremely powerful bass amplifier made by Marshall, similar to a Plexi with two channels, a bright and a normal, a three-band EQ, a volume for each channel, and a presence control. So, I shot out a bunch of different amps here, and really only ended up landing on one, the Marshall Origin 20, for $649. It's a 20 watt single channel all tube head with a three band EQ, presence control, master volume, gain with a push pull boost, and a tilt control that allows you to blend between what would be a channel one and two voicing on the classic Marshall. While this amp is more in the vein of a plexi than it is a major, it does the job well enough, especially after we tweak the settings and throw some pedals in front of it. Here I've got it set with a gain on two, tilt at 10, base at three, middle at two, treble at eight, and Presence at 7 with the master to taste. Now, let's get into the pedals. For his overdrive, John Frisiani has used a variety of different pedals throughout his career, including an MXR microamp, Boss SD-1 Super Overdrive, and an Ibanez TS9. After playing through a few different pedals, it didn't really feel like anything in the vein of what he actually uses sounded right here, possibly due to the fact that he was using a bass amp instead of a guitar amp, and I actually ended up landing on the Warm Audio Centavo, their clone of the Klon Centaur. John Frusciante was never known to use one, although Josh Klinghoffer was during this time with a band, but either way, it works really well to kick on during our verse to get the slight amount of breakup we need with our somewhat clean guitar. It's a little pricey at $179, but it works extremely well here, with the gain set to minimum, the treble set to about 2 o'clock, and the output set to about 2 o'clock. the chorus, the guitar is heavily distorted, and it's a well-known fact that John Frisiani has used a veritable smorgasbord of Boss distortion pedals, including the DS-1, so we're going to stick with that, as it's the most budget-friendly for only $62. bucks. we have set the tone to 10 o'clock, level to noon, and distortion to 1 o'clock, and we'll kick it on for the chorus and the high bends immediately following it. Now right after the chorus, we're treated to some distorted high-pitched bends, and the missing piece of this puzzle is its accompaniment of a wah, and John Frisiani's wah choice just so happens to be the Ibanez WH-10, a $159 wah pedal that can be run in either true or buffered bypass, has an adjustable depth knob, as well as a switch to adjust the frequency of the wah for guitar or bass. Here, we're saving a couple bucks by using the Dunlop GCB95 Crybaby Standard, a $99 wah without all the fancy controls of the WH-10 that does the job well enough for the short stint that we'll be using it for in this song. We're leaving our DS-1 on for this part and engaging the wah toe down every time we kick into a bend. Just like his overdrives and distortions, John Frusiani is known to use a variety of different fuzz pedals, most notably different variations of the Big Muff Pi. Here I'm using a Big Muff Pi Big Box reissue for just over hundred bucks, and we're gonna kick it on for the solo with the volume at three o'clock, tone at one o'clock, and sustain at 11 o'clock. Now due to the overall tone of the amp, as well as what we're throwing on after this in a second to complete our tone, these controls are pretty touchy, and any change to any one of these knobs will have a drastic difference in sound, so it's worth sitting down and really tweaking the settings to get what you're going for here. You'll notice that the guitar track for the solo is double-tracked, so we'll be pulling out the same pedal that we had to use last time we wanted to accomplish this, the electroharmonic slapback echo for $81. We've set the gain to around 10 o'clock, the time switch is in the shortest setting, and the blend knob is right at about noon to give us the double-tracking effect we need to finish out this song. And that finishes up our tone. Even if we use the conservative prices for John's gear, like using the Custom Shop Strat instead of an original 1962, we still come out to a total price of $9,266 for the original rig. While our rig is only at $1,630, that gives us a total savings of $7,636. Perfect for some at-home recording sessions or a red-hot copycat recipe. For our recording tip this week, I wanted to cover something a little different. I've seen a lot of videos online lately about Foley artists, and if you're not familiar with Foley, I've got you covered. Basically, Foley is the art of creating sound effects for movies, songs, and videos without using the real object that would create the sound. There's various different common ways to create Foley effects, like placing cornstarch in a pillowcase to simulate the crunching of snow under a foot, or hitting a phone book to get the sound of landing a punch, And while those may be great for movies or TV shows, what about the extra sounds we hear in some of our favorite songs? Now, no, I'm not talking about something like Motley Crue's Kickstart My Heart, where a slide guitar is making a stylistic interpretation of an engine redlining and shifting gears, but actual use of everyday items to create sound effects that your listener would be surprised to see the source of. Plenty of famous songs use sound effects stylistically in a bid to create more immersive experiences and add depth to and emotion for the listener. So today, we're going to cover a few of my favorite effects you can create with everyday items you probably already have lying around the house. You ready? Let's get to it. The first sound effect that we're going to create is that of a human heartbeat. Well, there's a few different ways to do it, my favorite is using a simple plastic trash can one of the small ones you're likely to find at the dollar store to put in something like your bathroom. Depending on the flexibility of the trash can you've got, you can either rhythmically pop the bottom in and out if it has enough give, or you can tap the bottom, varying the rate that you do this to simulate an intense, adrenaline-fueled heartbeat or a slow, relaxed throb. If the trash can you've got still sounds a little too unnatural, you can always throw a few soft shirts or a towel loosely packed inside to create a more muffled, realistic sound. One of the best examples of sound effects in modern music is the use of large, imposing bells ringing. A great use of this is heard in the intro of ACDC's Hell's Bells. The easiest way to get this sound without having to take a trip with a microphone out to your nearest carillon, which, fun fact, is actually the word for a complex musical bell tower, is to take a large metal mixing bowl and a dull, rigid object to strike it with. You'll have to play around with the placement of your strikes, I'm using a wooden mixing spoon to strike mine on the outside of the bowl, around the ring that the flat bottom forms. Make sure that while holding the bowl, you hold it as far away from where you're striking it as possible, as you don't want your hand to dampen the ringing of the bowl. While that in and of itself doesn't sound so convincing, if we add some creative EQ, large reverb, and delay, we have an excellent recreation of a deep ringing bell perfect for adding some dark, somber ambiance to our track. The crackling of a fire is an effect often used in a slow, acoustic love song to elicit a feeling of warmth, comfort, and coziness in the listener, and while accidentally melting a mic probably wasn't in your plans for the day, eating something that came in a cellophane wrapper most likely was, and as long as we save that wrapper and roll it gently between our fingers, combine it with gently blowing into the mic while waving our hand in front of our face like John Cena... We can have an extremely realistic and convincing crackling fire going in our track in no time. The next sound effect is actually pretty commonly used in Foley to create the sounds of bones breaking. In fact, before I even tell you what it is, I'll record it and play it back first so I can blow your mind afterwards. You ready? Sickening, right? So what was it? Did I smack my femur with a hammer to get that sound? Of course not, I just snapped a crisp, fresh piece of celery in half. But why would we want the sound of bones breaking in our song? Well, creativity knows no limits, but the breaking of a bone isn't exactly what I was going for, but rather using the effect as a pause before a beat drops in a song, similar to the break in Korn's song Way Too Far. Now this last sound effect isn't necessarily trying to imitate anything, but I thought I'd throw it in for some good measure anyway. If you're lacking some light, regular percussion in your song, and you want something just to add a little more texture in the background, A great way to make an inexpensive, easy-to-use noisemaker is to stick some rice in a small plastic container, about three quarters full. You can use something like a plastic Easter egg or just a small Tupperware container used for condiments, but rice hitting plastic creates a great rhythmic shaker instrument that can be just what you're looking for to throw the finishing touches on your track. Now, while that doesn't sound all that impressive on its own, go back to the beginning of the episode and take a listen to the intro where I played the song that shall not be named. You'll hear the rice shaker in the background, and it really works in a great, simple acoustic mix like that. That's all for a recording tip today. I know it was a little out of the ordinary for what we usually do, but hopefully it'll help you think differently about getting creative and using objects not normally considered instruments to add some depth and texture to your tracks. Did you know that the bass guitar was actually invented in the 1930s, but didn't even become commercially successful until two whole decades later? Unlike the near-overnight popularity of the solid-body electric guitar, the bass guitar saw a much slower and more gradual rise to prominence in modern music. Yeah, a guy named Paul Tutmark, who was a tenor singer along with a ukulele and lap steel player, created the bass guitar his first model being the Audiovox Model 736 Electric Bass Fiddle, which was initially seen as a bass option for lower-income musicians who couldn't afford a real double bass, which was still used to accompany guitars in the lower end of the frequency spectrum. The bass guitar didn't even gain popularity until the 50s, when guitars and PA systems got louder, musicians needed more volume, and were likely just downright tired of lugging around a huge double bass with them to shows. I mean, jeez. Imagine that load in and load out with that thing. Not to mention having to mic it without any bleed if you're not using a piezo. It's gotta be terrible. So now we've reached the end of today's episode. Normally the part where I sit here and talk about how I'm giving away a free t-shirt, but I'm not gonna talk about that. I'm not even gonna mention the fact that you could email me or DM me on any one of my socials, telling me what your favorite piece of budget gear is and why you like it to be entered into the running to win a free podcast t-shirt. I'm not gonna tell you how it's super comfortable a really stylish black and purple, how it's dry fit so that it's great even in the summer, and I won't even say that I'll pick a winner at the end of May. We need a break from that this week, so I'm just not going to talk about it. Can you can you see that? I'm winking. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I love interacting with you guys, I love answering questions, and I love learning things from you guys too when you guys have something cool to show me. It's awesome to get to talk to you. I really enjoy it. It makes my day. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. It's been another great week sitting here hanging out with you guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next week. Take care.